hello and welcome to Discord, a podcast to explore the intersection between music and theatre. I'm Adam Lenson, and week by week, I will be trying to figure out the conundrum that is musical theatre. Welcome to episode 15, Discord. As you may have noticed, Discord has been taking a little break. This has been because I've been directing a few workshops of new musicals, and I've tried to put into practice, work through, and debate some of what I've been learning as I've made this podcast. One of the projects I've directed is a workshop production of Wasted, a new rock musical about the Brontes by Christopher Ash and Carl Miller, which you may remember from an earlier intermission episode of this podcast. But I'm pleased to say we're finally back with episode 15. And this week, we get to speak to noted British musical theatre writer, Dougal Irvine. Dougal is a composer, lyricist and writer. Originally he trained as an actor and was seen in shows including Rent and Wicked, but then made the transition to writing full-time. His work writing musicals includes Departure Lounge, which has been seen all over the world, notably in cities including London, New York, Belfast and Chicago. The Busker's Opera, which ran this year at London's Park Theatre, In Touch, The Other School and Angry Birds. For these shows, Dougal wrote book, music and lyrics. As a lyricist, he has collaborated notably with Rifko Arts on their musicals Layla and Britain's Got Bangra, both of which toured nationally. As composer of incidental music and songs for plays, his work includes The Twits, The Importance of Being Earnest and The Witches at Leicester Curve, Teddy at Southwark Playhouse, The Snow Queen and The Back Eye at the Royal and Derngate Theatres in Northampton. He won the Cameron Mackintosh Composer in Residence Award in 2012 when he was based at the Northampton Royal and Derngate Theatres and he is now an associate artist of the Leicester Curve. To give you a sense of Dougal's work, here is an extract of where it all began for him, the 2008 musical Departure Lounge. I'm Jake Bartholomew Watson, me mates call me JB. JB! They're all top lads and they all look up to me. We've had a week in Spain on the Costa del Sol. We spent all of our money, now we're all burnt as hell. We've had an excellent summer and we'd like to stay forever. We love our queen and country, but we love drinking more. We are the Brits on tour. We are the Brits on tour. Right, Pete, you twice. Yeah, this is your go, right? And now moving to the more recent end of Dougal's career, here is a song from the Buskers Opera, performed this year at the Park Theatre in London. It's called The Tale of the Rat, and here is the composer singing it. This is the tale of the rat that kept on growing. There once was a rat, and it ate so much it got fat. It was a fat rat, bigger than a cat. It was so obese that its legs ceased to carry its weight. And so it lay its bait awaiting its fate. It was found on the ground by a groom and his pretty young bride. The bride cried, take the rat inside and keep it as a pet. And so they kept it, and it ate more than any rat had ever ate before. The rat sat on a wooden stand, and the couple fed the rat by hand. Turns out what the fat rat loved to eat was the rubbish people throw away in the street. This is the tale of the rat that kept on growing And the people had no way of knowing How to stop the rate of growth from slowing Do you not see where we're going? 
But despite how prolific Dougal is and how successful he seems as a new British musical theatre composer, the main thrust of our conversation was about how difficult it is to survive financially as a musical theatre writer in Britain, how little money there is for the development of new shows, and how little emerging and mid-career artists can count on funding in order to build a sustainable career. He sat down with me in a very noisy coffee shop. I think in terms of getting British writers who want to write musicals to write an original musical which will reach a big, reach a big audience, uh, I think that the infrastructure is really difficult. That's what we're trying to negotiate, is to get through it. And the reason is because there's just not enough money in it, if I'm practic- being practical, to attract the, the level of talent that, wants, that, that, that can stay in it long enough to, make, to, to learn the, the skills to, to make it last. And I think new British musical theatre writing hasn't got enough money or a robust enough infrastructure And I think that this could be because of the extreme commercial success of mega musicals made in the 1980s by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh. These works gave the sense that musicals are only a commercial form and that they can take care of themselves, that we don't need money or infrastructure to facilitate their growth. But I believe that musical theatre as an art form requires refined, detailed and interwoven craft and they need to be developed and nurtured as do new voices. In order to do this, artists making early and mid-career work do need investment. I say to Dougal that from my perspective, he seems to be one of the great success stories of a new generation of musical theatre writers. However, he says that even though he is often busy, that financially, his career is still problematic. We're talking treading water. I'm not certainly not making nearly as much as I did when I was acting. And, and there's only, you know, I've got a family. There's only so long I can keep doing this before I've got to either have a show which, which you know, does have a commercial, like, and, yeah, and allows me to, to, to you know, to, to sort of actually do a bit, have a bit of savings or, you know, or take my family on holiday or those sorts of things which I've completely sacrificed for a long time. And I say that there are very few writers in British musical theatre who are able to create more than one show that gets produced, who are able to to generate a body of work, who are working in major theatres and on major stages. And Dougal Irvine is one of those musical theatre writers. And so it's hard for me to hear that he often has trouble making a living. And he says he has two choices, either to keep going like this. Or I do what many other writers do and I get a full-time job and write, you know, one show a year if I can, or one show every two years in my spare time and, and, and try and make it sort of work that way. But part of what I think makes artists get better is working regularly. So the idea of having to take on a day job in order to write in your spare time, while for some people it's a reality, for the people at the top of their art, surely that should be something they shouldn't have to do and there should be money and infrastructure to enable them to not have to. I'm quite pragmatic about it. I think that the work I create has to sustain me because I think that's the way I work in terms of it. It has to have enough vitality, it has to appeal to enough people to be able to earn me enough money to live because I sort of feel it it needs to have a value. If you see what I mean, I'm I'm not, not so interested in writing something which... Um, uh, yeah, it's just going to go on experimentally and, and, not, and, and not going to attract. I want to write for the biggest audience I can get to. So Dougal is trying to find and speak to an audience. He is looking to create something that could be popular and accessible. He isn't shunning money and making niche, uncompromised, pure art with no sense of the people who might want to see it one day. But even so, he's noting that he needs help to bridge the gap between intention and a sustainable financial reality. 
But I've been feeling like about blogging something or saying something for a while. It, it, it is hard, and I maybe was naive. I was, you know, yeah, I feel like I naively um, was looking for something to do other than acting um, because I was getting married and I didn't want to tour and I didn't want to be work at nights because my wife isn't in, uh, isn't in the business. And so I, I thought I turned my hand to writing because I'd done a psychology degree and I sort of had this idea for Departure Lounge. Um, and in Departure Lounge, so I worked and that created a writer of me. Really, I got jobs from Departure Lounge, and, and suddenly I was a, I was I was getting paid to write, which was amazing. And I then, I then spent a few years then figuring out how you make a living as a writer and how you how you come at the industry from from the from backstage and, and, and all that sort of thing. But it's really really difficult. And I know we all have to think about money and how sustainable our careers are. But I don't think it's particularly good for artists to be so worried about money that essentially they're taking jobs and making work with a proviso of making more money to make their lives easier. Because in the end, I don't think that the best art can be made that way. I think the best art is made by having a story that burns in you that needs to be told and finding the best way of telling that story and communicating that story without necessarily having to worry about how it will be financially successful. And I, I feel proud of, of the work I've done and I've got on. But whenever I write a new musical, for example, I'm always subsidising myself. Always, it's never, I'm certainly not, that's not really what then pays the bills. I have to find, navigate a way around it. And in new British musical theatre, in the main, when you're writing a musical, you're doing so on your own and at your own expense until it's finished and until someone perhaps picks up the show and supports it on its road to maybe being produced. It's rare that writers are commissioned to write new musicals in the way that they're commissioned to write new plays. And as such, even experienced writers of musical theatre are having to put a lot of effort in without a concrete sense that the show will ever go anywhere or ever bring in any revenue. I've done a couple of shows where, which are commissioned that way around, that, that's when it can actually work. And you can sort of, uh, particularly if you write a decent tour, it's the work I've done with Rifco Arts. You know, I've done two tours with them. One of them was successful enough to be toured the second year. So that's three national tours. You know, that's, that's great. And you can start to actually, you know, buy yourself a bit of space to sort of think about another project and stuff. But um, even the Busker's Opera, which is on around the corner, you know, spent five years working on that and, and I got five grand for it you know that's that's not you can't do I can't turn around to my wife and kids and say that's 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 what we're going to live off you know it's not completely impractical and only because my wife stands behind me and, 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 and can sort of see the potential in what I could get and what I could kind of um, uh, potentially if the show is a hit or, or whatever then then um, you know we, we keep at it but it's very much uh, like I said it's got to have value what I do it's got to enable me to live and they often say that theatre is a discipline where you can't make a living but you can make a killing and that's based on the idea that it's very difficult to make theatre a day job in which you earn a sustained living however if you get very lucky and end up working on a hit you can make a huge amount of money a killing and that is especially true in musical theatre, in which a very small proportion of shows make an insane amount of money, millions and millions of pounds, while the rest make almost nothing. And I think that rather than there being this extreme disparity between the very rare hits and the rest of the shows making almost no money, shouldn't there be a way of us having a more balanced infrastructure in which we invest some money from extreme hits into making our community better and into making our writers be able to have more sustainable career paths. Artists get better the more work they make, the more opportunities they have. 
So I suggest it's strange that new British musical theatre's infrastructure isn't evolved enough to allow artists to develop sustainable careers where they can create bodies of work and develop their craft. And I wonder if this has something to do with the one-hit wonder culture that we seem to be living in, where instant fame and an X-Factor style rise to stardom without the career and preparation that used to precede that has taken over. I think that people often forget that a show written by someone who's been writing and developing work for years will usually be better than someone who hasn't. So I believe that we need to encourage writers to have careers and not simply turn out individual shows. So I went to um, uh, a BBC Writers Room uh, seminar just recently. Uh, I do think um, that, that, that even in TV they have the same problem. Is that very good at giving writers a first break. There are lots of initial writers, new voices, initiatives. Let's get people in, let's get people doing things. What, where, it really, where the subsidy and where the support really lacks is about building uh, people, actually helping them forge a career, like getting people, like what they call emerging artists or whatever. It's those, those relationships which are built up over time which need support and need multiple, really multiple gigs at a, a venue to build up the trust and the sort of relationships uh, that, that we're not so good at doing, I don't think. And this reminds me of a conversation I had in New York a couple of years ago with David Van Asselt, the artistic director of the Rattlestick Playwrights Theatre. He told me that when the Rattlestick agree to produce a play by a new writer, they also, in the contract, commit to producing that writer's second play at the venue. And what this means is that even if the first play doesn't go that well, the writer still knows that they've got a second play. Or if the first play goes brilliantly, it allows them to do something more experimental or different with the second play with the guarantee that it's going to happen anyway, that the theatre isn't going to turn around and say, no, we don't want that second play. And what he said was, they're not interested really in producing just plays, they're interested in producing voices. And this just struck me as one of the most altruistic and brilliant ideas. He also said they'd never met a writer who messed up both opportunities. They always found something in one of them because they knew that they had a couple of chances. And maybe sometimes we only give people one chance before we toss them to the sharks. And I think the mentality is changing, actually. I think people, people are starting to realise it. And I think it's maybe a generational shift. Maybe everyone got complacent for 20 years when Cameron McIntosh was a big hit and they thought musicals were taken care of. I think there is a new generation of programmers, of artistic directors uh, uh, and up-and-coming directors who, who sort of see that, that yeah, it's about, it's about people building relationships with people over time and about kind of... You know, might this this show project they're doing might not work, but but it's the next one that that could really work and could really help everybody. It could be the warhorse, or it could be the you know the the whatever that kind of um because um, you know what is it one one show in ten actually makes money or something like that anyway. So you, you know you've got uh, uh, I don't know how many shows I've got in me, but um, yeah, I certainly hope I'm getting better at what I do. And I find it hard to believe that Dougal isn't getting better at writing musicals because we all learn from each piece we make. And we take that learning forward onto the next one. There is hopefully a cumulative rise in what we know and the quality of our output. But perhaps because people have thought of musicals as these big, glossy and rare hits amongst seas of failures, we don't value people trying and failing and developing and failing better. And perhaps we only value big, flashy, bombastic success stories. And this has also affected the sort of musicals that people are typically making and restricted what people think the medium can do. And that stops musicals being the art form I believe that they can be, because the infrastructure isn't developed enough to form a full and rich ecosystem of new musical work. So everything is just an anomaly, even the success stories. 
Dougal suggests that one of the reasons there is misunderstanding around the development of musicals is because it's quite difficult to understand musicals without seeing them, and seeing them is expensive. This is so expensive, and it's only seen by such a small group of people, even the big productions, really. Um, I can write a, make a pop music video, and, and, and I can talk to you about it, and, and you can go online and watch it, and then we can have a, a, a conversation about it, because we've both seen it. I can do a theatre show last year, which you haven't seen, and we've got no context, really, with, with it to talk about it. And I always say that musical theatre is a three-dimensional medium because it doesn't necessarily make sense just on the page or just from listening to a recording. You have to see a piece of musical theatre and then be able to experience all of the elements working together. And so, if you don't see it when it's on, then some part of that experience vanishes forever and then you can't discuss it or judge it fully. And going to the theatre is, as Dougal says, expensive, so people can't see everything. And what they miss can't be experienced after the fact. So I think also you've got a lot of people coming together saying they, they don't like this or they don't like this or they haven't seen it, when actually they haven't, they haven't seen enough really to know what they're talking about. I think a lot of people, yeah, just because there isn't time in the world and money in the world to see every production. People often say that they dislike musical theatre, but as I've said before, I think they often dislike what they have assumed musical theatre to be rather than what it actually is. And I think this is in some way connected to what Dougal's saying, that it's quite difficult to actually get to see musicals, and that often our experience of what musicals are comes from experiencing a piece of them, whether that's a recording or hearing a bit of it on the radio or seeing it on screen rather than seeing it in person. And I also think that audiences are used to musical theatre being received as a certain part of the medium. And that actually there are a lot of diverse and different types of musical theatre that are possible if we can get over our assumptions. However, if this podcast journey is teaching me anything, it's that I can't just shout at people to like musicals. Instead, we have to create more examples of good musical theatre so that the medium can flourish. And in order to do this, I think that we have to create a community based on principles, conversation and dialogue. We have to look at historical examples of musical theatre that have worked, that have broken the mould, that have done things well. We then have to evolve them, mash them up with contemporary influences and create more good work. And then those good examples will get seen by more people and that will lead to audiences and the medium flourishing. But, as Dougal says, in order for that to happen people have to experience musical theatre. And they often don't, because it's expensive. Knowing how hard it is to just make a new musical, I asked Dougal what his thoughts are on innovation. An idea I'm developing for myself, I suppose, is that you can innovate in one area or two areas perhaps, but to try and innovate everything is, is a mess. And I think too often in musical theatre, in order to innovate, people throw out everything all at once. And this reminds me of science experiments where if you change every variable at the same time, you don't learn anything. And that's why in science you have what are called controls, which are things that you keep the same, and variables, which are things that you change. And in science, that breeds innovation. And I wonder if in creative landscapes, potentially it's a good idea to keep some things the same and then decide what to change, as Dougal does. And this might be a very good way of honing innovation without perhaps throwing out the baby with the bathwater on every show. I think that ultimately as well, like, I mean, I suppose some things, some pieces of art are born as a rage against the machine. You know, some, you know, a lot of, uh, 
people always say they wrote a certain song as a reaction to something or a play as a reaction, which, which is cool. But I think hate, hatred and, and repulsion can only get you, and pushing against can only get you so far. I think you've got to, ultimately, you've got to love what you're doing and you've got to have a vision of the sort of show you're trying to make. But I think lately people are trying to make innovative musicals without loving what they're doing. These people often claim to hate musicals, but decide to make one anyway. But often, I believe this dislike is based on a very restricted subset of musicals or a restricted perception of what musicals have been or can achieve. So these people say, I don't like Joseph or Annie or The Sound of Music, so I've concluded existing musicals aren't for me. But when these artists who claim they hate musicals decide to make one, they often suggest that they're going to innovate and get things right for once, that they're going to make something that revolutionises the medium. But they're going to do it without information about what musicals actually in reality are. They're going to make the anti-musical by ignoring history and led by a hatred of what they assume musicals are. But I suggest that not really knowing what musicals are and trying to make an innovative new one is like trying to push against a shadow rather than pushing off against a wall. It can't actually move you anywhere. But if you know where the current shows are, the current boundaries and principles and styles, and about the history and infrastructure of a medium, if you know where the walls are, then pushing against them might actually move you somewhere new. But pushing against a shadow will get you nowhere. Like me, Dougal agrees that making a show out of hatred isn't really a good place to start. Maybe that will get you in into the into the creating the thing because you say you didn't want it did, I don't want it to be like that. But then ultimately you've got to look at what you're doing. So how I ask Dougal does he look at what he's doing and begin a positive process of making a show? The way I feel like I, I work is is there's two parts to everything. There's the research part which I do as much as I can and I can learn an incredible amount by learning about everything doing that way. But then you really only take that research on board once you've made something and, and with every. And, and so I think there is also a case of this. You can do too, not do too much research, but you can spend too long developing something. Sometimes you just put it out and go, okay, I've learned from that now. And then the next time you come around, you know, that's when you really apply it. I like the idea that research and planning are what are needed to get started, but that actually some of that research and planning doesn't necessarily make sense until the writing is done. And that unlike some mediums where there is a kind of linear pathway in creating that work. In musical theatre, I think that very often the writing and the evaluation of that writing and the preparation and the research kind of pass back and forward between themselves rather than a strictly linear process. As I said earlier, Dougal studied psychology at university and both of his parents are scientists. And I also studied science at university, and I find it endlessly interesting the way that scientific knowledge has shown itself to be built on knowledge from the past. And famously, Isaac Newton said, if I have seen further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. He acknowledged that he took the knowledge of the community around him and before him and what they knew and built on top of it. And I asked Dougal why he thinks that often creative people ignore a lot of what's come before them. And I especially see this in the creation of musical theatre. But I think, I think it, part of the problem, I don't know, but part of the problem comes back to what I said, it's expensive to see musicals. I, I, you can't physically see them all. So in, in science, you, you've read every research, you've read every paper there is, you know, you go through, you are literally standing, you, you, you know all the research and then you're trying to create something new. My dad's a scientist, he's retired now, but he, was, he, was, he worked in 
pharmacology. Um, but but you just you just don't. I mean, I have you know you have certain resources. You you listen. I listen to as many musicals as I can, but I've never seen a production of. Um, uh, I've never seen a production of the Sound of Music live, for example, seen film. Uh, I've never seen like the. Uh, I've, I've, I don't think I've ever seen a West Side Story live either. You know, I've seen it again with the film. But um, you know, there's only so much of the of the, of the canon of the research you can actually. Yeah, just because of the practicalities, you've got to be in the room and you've got to um, do it. So I think I feel like everybody's at at a slightly different sort of stage, I suppose, and um, uh, and like. And you can only be what, what you can only because it's so art, it's so personal. You can only be what you are as well. And I think that in the same way that Dougal is saying it's hard to forge a career as a writer of musical theatre, it's also difficult to be informed fully and three-dimensionally about musical theatre because it's expensive, the resources aren't necessarily there, the community and the examples aren't necessarily there. And even when they are, they're ephemeral, they last for a certain period of time. And it's expensive to access that world, and especially expensive to access that world in an exhaustive way. Dougal goes on to say that in order to engage modern audiences, it's important to use music that is relevant to the contemporary moment. But while he likes a broad range of musical styles and genres, what he most admires about musical theatre is the way that the music is used to contain narrative. Inherently, what, what I love about musicals is when a song tells the narrative. It's when people can converse in song. It's when like, and that's hard to do. That's what, I think that's what takes the most skill and craft of any of writing. Yeah, and that's what takes the time. That's why people need second and third chance to write things because that, that sort of that shit that, that takes time to get to do. Um, whereas a pop song is is so organic and so rough. You know, somebody can write the best song in the world in five minutes. You know, the Beatles did did it again time and time again. And while Dougal and I perhaps know that this is an oversimplification of what it takes to write a pop song. I don't think it could be denied that the specificity of musical theatre songs and the narrative and the character that they have to contain does require crafting and integrating with a lot more elements than a standalone pop song. And as such, it's harder to get it right on the first try. And the process of getting it right can take many drafts and a lot longer time. I suggest that people often think that songs are songs are songs and that musical theatre songs and pop songs are broadly the same. After all, they both contain music and words. But I think the amount and type of content of a pop song and a musical theatre song are different. And it's that difference in the content that those songs contain that delineates a musical theatre piece from a collection of pop songs. But, Dougal says, pop songs or songs without character and narrative can still be useful in a theatrical context. If you're smart, when you when you get a song like that, is you go, well, it's obviously it's not specific. It's not one character talking to another. So let's use it like what it is, it's soundtrack. Let's have something really interesting, visual happening in front of it. Let's have them on the train. Let's have them having an argument or something and use the song as, as background. And I think a good show should probably have a song which does that in it, regardless. And in episode eight, I spoke to writer Tim Gilvin about the fact that some songs perhaps are rooms and some are corridors and that a good theatre piece will contain both types of songs. And if you're interested in the discussion of the difference between pop music and musical theatre songs, then I would also recommend you listen to that episode. Dougal and I then looped back to the idea of how difficult it can be to craft a career as a writer of musical theatre in this country. 
He suggests that maybe one of the ways of enabling that to happen is that instead of all writers having to be freelance, that we should allow them to be able to be based at a theatre and given a sustained salary by that building. To be a, a, a resident composer at a theatre would be an absolute gift as a writer because, I mean, the, the practical aspects of it are at the fee, you get paid for, for writing, for composing for a play, for example, or even a Christmas show. You'd have to do six jobs a year, seven or eight actually, to earn the national average practical returns. And there ain't seven or eight jobs available a year, really. So the only way it can work if you want writers to write anything other than the jobs they're doing uh, is they have to find a secondary income from somewhere. Now, if they were a resident composer as part of the theatre, they would be in the salary and they could write, you know, work on fewer productions, but they would have a chance then to go out and freelance and do other things and stuff as well. It would be, a, it would be an absolute gift. Um, and I think that that should be something that, that many regional theatres could work towards. And the Cameron Mackintosh Composer-in-Residence Award does enable a writer to be resident inside a building. However, that opportunity only stretches to six months in length. And even though there are a handful of composer-in-residence opportunities in theatres in this country, there are very few. I think that these sustained long-term relationships are going to be the best way of writers gaining more confidence, more experience, more knowledge, and thus being able to innovate and grow and create voices rather than just products and to create careers rather than just shows. They're there and they're being paid to live and work and breathe that theatre. And that's such a, a gift as a development. It's so, it would be so, be so good. And, and camera making schemes are great. And there's, there's like been six or seven of them now and there's more coming, which is amazing. And I think they're absolutely, they're, they're brilliant. And they're for mid-scale art, they're for kind of nurturing artists, but they are, they are only six months. And while six months of paid creative work is certainly nothing to be sniffed at, in the chronology of an entire career, it's only a very small portion of that. And as a theatre director, I am a career freelancer. And I would say that I haven't really belonged anywhere for a sustained period of time. I've done jobs where I've been with a director for three or six months. I assisted at the Royal Shakespeare Company for nine months, but then it finished and I left. The stories that you see of artists who work in a building which then absorbs them and lets them become part of the furniture and lets them be there for three, four, five years or more and allows their creative practice to grow over that time. You can see why that's a wonderful thing and how with the pressure of having to find the next job or earn a sustained living, something else asserts itself about those artists. And suddenly I begin to wonder why every theatre in the country can't have placements for writers, placements for composers, abilities to have a sustained community, a sustained period of artistic growth, and a sustained period of financial security for those people. Because in a way, rather than passing out jobs, bits and bobs, dribs and drabs, maybe there'd be better results from giving more sustained opportunities for more theatres. I asked Dougal, as someone who has had to work hard to make opportunities for himself and to forge a career without subsidy or without belonging long-term in a building, what his experiences of making musical theatre have been the way the way you phrase the question makes it sound like I have a, a choice in the matter. I suppose brutal reality is, I say yes to every job I can afford to say yes to. I'm still not at the stage where I can really turn jobs down. I've turned down the odd one or two just because the money's been just ridiculous, or 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 you know miraculously it's clashed with something or whatever. But but generally it's a case of we want you to write lyrics on this job, 
you know, you get a 2%, you get blah, 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 you get this, and they'll go, yes, please. Uh, and, and somehow I've had enough of those gigs for the last five years to just about keep me afloat. Um, and then somehow in my spare time, so the Cameron Macintosh scheme I, uh, was over six months I wrote music for two plays, which is quite intense. It was like eight-week rehearsal period, we devised it. But that did give me some space around it either side. After casting and everything like that, I had about six weeks free. I used that space of my time to write the first draft of what became Busker's Opera. That then got optioned and that then eventually started its five-year journey to, to being on this kind of year and stuff. So in between, it's really a case of kind of finding the, the gaps in what you're doing to sort of to, to get new work or it's a case of going, I know I've got, if I know I've got three months coming up, if I end up in a conversation where somebody's in a position to commission me to write something, I know I can probably, if, yeah, I can say, well, look, what can you pay me? Great, I'll take that and I know I can, that, that buys me X amount of time and I can write a draft of what it and it, I know it's going to get on, it's gonna, so I can, I can work very quickly. One of the reasons that Dougal suggests that he can write very quickly is because he writes book, music and lyrics on his own in many cases. And I ask him why that works for him and why he thinks that that's a good idea. I can work very quickly if I know I have to. If it's just me, I can, I can, you know, my book, my book writer, my lyricist, my composer get on very, very well. And it's all about serving the songs and the story. And the book is the most important thing structurally. And so I'm quite happy to cut. So, you know, all those, all those things which, are really, which take years to build up with, with a collaboration with, where, where there's lots of people and it's still really eggy. I can reach a decision very quickly as a, as a, when I'm doing all three. However, one way in which I would disagree with Dougal here is that I believe there are circumstances where two or three people can surely work faster than one person on their own if they have built a strong and well-communicated collaboration. And two or three brains working together, I believe, can help to discover enhanced depth and diversity of the material more effectively. However, if there are limited financial resources to go around, then the more people involved, the less money per person. Also, the speed of a multi-person collaboration is predicated on the artists being available at the same time and being able to keep to the same schedule. And Dougal has said that to sustain a career in the challenging circumstances of musical theatre in this country, he needs to be able to take jobs and not have to worry about other people's availability or differences of opinion slowing him down. And this does seem difficult to me in some ways, because I think the best art is created when artists have no requirement to create it other than their need to tell a story. Or of course that's idealistic and rare. But maybe it's a situation we should try and create more frequently, so writers like Dougal can forge collaborations and create work that is denser and well interrogated without having to worry about rushing it or getting it done simply to forge a piece of a career. However, I would agree with Dougal when he says that in practice, musicals are full of rate-limiting steps where material is being passed back and forward between collaborators and team members. And if, like Dougal, you can do all three things, book, music and lyric writing, then I can see why it's appealing to do so. I can see why it gives him results. The integration of, of lyric and, and text, for example, and, and just like all of that, like how you get from scene to song and stuff, like I suppose when you see the whole pie, that, that happens automatically and you already know if you're setting up a song in that one you already know like oh that can pay off at that point and uh, and this is a fast song so it's got to be like a mid-tempo song next so i'm building towards that sort of story moment so you kind of do all the mathematical things anyway as an example of the pace that dougal says he can find 
He tells me about a show he's working on at the moment. So, for example, I'm writing something for the Belgrave Theatre, which is going to go on in January, um, February next year. Um, and I began work on it in uh, first draft I started in June. At the time of our conversation, that's just over three months ago. So I wrote the first draft in six weeks. I've had feedback. I've got another draft due in the next sort of three or four weeks. But it's that, it's, it's, I mean, it's not a musical. It's a play with songs, which is the easier. And I kind of picked, it's, you know, the structure of the book I was adapting dictated that more than anything. And also the budget of the show, and, and also first things first, you know, for the producers, what scale of production is this? How many can I have in the cast? All those questions I was able to answer before I started writing. It does seem quick to be able to write a play with songs in six weeks. And Dougal says that in some ways, the creative limitations of knowing exactly how many are in the cast and what theatre it's for are extremely useful in doing things that quickly. The trouble with working on your own is you can get really, if you get stuck, you can get really stuck and you can go, I don't know how the fuck to solve this. And then quite often I take a day off and go and do something else and come back and, and sometimes a, a, a problem, will, a solution will present itself or, or, you know, occasionally I'll talk to my wife about it or somebody I trust in the industry just talk about a problem and sometimes just bouncing, bouncing an idea, a, a solution will happen. So there are advantages to collaboration, it seems to me, and advantages to the integration and the pace of being able to work on your own. But either way, we all need people to help dig us out of the difficult moments. And while people working in theatre often know how difficult it is to sustain a career and a life, Dougal and I reflected on the fact that those outside of working in theatre often don't see how difficult it is and maybe assume that it's more glamorous or well-paid or sustainable than it really is. But I think we do need to speak out about it. And I think also, like, so my wife's not in the industry and I meet people all the time who go, oh, you work in theatre? Well, wow, really glad you must be earning a fortune. Like, they, their perception of people that work in the arts from the outside, particularly if you've been in a West End show or you've, you've worked at any, you know, sort of top level stuff, they just think you're rolling it and stuff. And it just couldn't be far from the truth. You know, I can, I can say to them, I guarantee you earn more. Than me. I guarantee, you know, you've got a pension, for example. I guarantee you've got, like, you get holiday pay and you get all of these things and stuff. And uh, so, so I, I do feel that there, there is a, and I think the X Factor culture is massively to blame for it, um, because I love what I do and I wouldn't change it. And I do, and I will continue to do it for as long as I can continue to support a family doing it because I love it and I value it. Um, but I think too many people get into this industry with the wrong, wrong ideals and, and you know, and, and the wrong, wrong perception of what it is and what will happen to them, and they burn out after a few years because they don't understand the hard work that it takes. I suggest once again that musical theatre can be expensive to produce and people thus expect musical theatre to be expensive and if Dougal has any reflections on that. I do think for people starting out the only advice I would say is to write a small show to begin with and Departure Lounge I knew it would get on because there's well four or five in the cast two guitars I, 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 mainly I knew the set would only ever be four chairs so I knew we'd be fine um, but since then I haven't written another small show because I've sort of been wanting to sort of stretch myself but I would love to now to come back to actually having putting a lot of what I've learned from just writing a lot of shows into something quite small because I know that that would attract would, would again would, would have a chance to, to get on it's finding the right story that I could tell with, with just two people or, or you know the right people I think Dougal's advice to start by writing something small is good I'm not saying that all new musical theatre should be small, but I think it's complicated and requires a lot of moving parts. And that if you can't do it on a reasonably small scale, I think there's very little chance that you'll be able to do it on a big scale. 
I think it's better to hone your process on smaller shows and then scale them up to larger narratives and larger productions and casts. And I think something Americans are very good at is the idea of the calling card, the calling card script, the calling card screenplay, the calling card musical. And in the making of this sort of musical, they often aspire for something that is producible, that defines their work as an artist, but does so in a way that makes it financially possible to put that work on rather than just simply leave it in someone's drawer. Once again, our conversation loops back to the idea of theatre being ephemeral and the fact that it's difficult for large audiences to see a show or to understand what a show is if they haven't seen it. Because obviously theatre is expensive and only so many people can see it. So I put five years into Busker's Opera and, you know, in five years it would be five grand, I've talked about that. But, but also, you know, it was seen by however many thousand uh, people not many <laughs> came to the park and saw it and now you know I, it was the worst work I put into anything but if I have to rely on, on somebody that, that's going to potentially employ me seeing that show because I can't then sit down in a meeting with somebody who hasn't seen the show because we just have no context all they can go is oh I heard it was alright basically they know whether they want to employ you or not kind of thing probably if they've got you into the room so it's it's um it's yeah it's tricky it's having some way of recording a show which is not somebody videoing it from the stalls which never worked um, that is that is I'm open to offers as to how we do that better at the small and mid scale because digital theatre is doing amazing things now broadcasting and cin- uh, theatre to cinemas and stuff and I, I go see NT Live quite a lot because it's just because it's the, it's the closest thing to me and I'm ca- able to catch up on things I couldn't get tickets for I love it actually I really enjoy it um, when it's done well and so I think um yeah, for, especially for a new show, like if it's good, if you can capture it in an exciting way on film, it could definitely lead to future productions. And this makes me wonder if platforms like National Theatre Live or Digital Theatre, which have been created in order to capture and broadcast theatre in cinemas or on TV, could maybe come up with smaller scale platforms or affordable models of capturing or broadcasting theatre so the audiences could be engaged by musical theatre without necessarily having to be in that room. And I wonder if there's a way or a distribution model where the prices paid by high-level companies in some way could subsidise smaller companies to enable their work to live on in a more durable and enjoyable mechanism. I think you also have to be self, like, like if you have to sort of build that into the back of your head when you're doing a show. We have to find a way to record this at some point. So I always make sure we get a rip off the sound desk. So we've got it, you know, I always make sure, and, and, and I could have gone further and trying to get it filmed in some way as well. There's, there's never the money for it, but you know, it's never been easier to make films or things. It's just, uh, uh, that's something that I think that every modern, you know, writer of today should think about as they start to create a show is how we get this out on YouTube in some form. Because making a career isn't just about working. It's about advertising yourself, promoting yourself and building relationships. And part of building relationships is acknowledging that not everyone will be able to get into a theatre to watch what you're up to. So we need to find more intelligent ways of allowing them to know what happens inside theatres, even if they can't necessarily be there. 
One of the things I can find frustrating about making musical theatre in this country is the fact that theatres and audiences don't always want or understand new musical theatre. And because of that, it can sometimes feel to me a little bit like making a product for which there's no retailer and no buyer. I don't think you can do it that way around. I certainly, I just wrote the partial challenge because I had to get it off my chest. I was like, I just need to hear, I just need to say these things. I need to, uh, you know, have these songs. I, I, it was, and it, you know, part of my life story was in, you know, I, d- I did have a group of mates that fell out over a, a girl sleeping with one of his best mates. Got a thing. It was sort of a bit of catharsis in there as well. And it found, a, it found a home. And I, and you know, there is that thing of with every show as well. You've got to, you've got to, you sort of. You, you, you even even if you have an audience that you think you have an audience you put it out it may not it may hit or miss so if it's something that's brand new you're putting it out there and, and sometimes people do respond to it and and that's that's really hard it's got to be done over that's why Glasgow's Opera took five years and even Departure Lounge to get to London took um, uh, four years you know because it, it just takes time then to build up the following and the word of mouth and all those things and stuff like that so Dougal says first build it and then let them come rather than the other way around. I think particularly with a new piece, you've got to, you can't have regrets, really. You've got to put it all out there. And, and, and that is terrifying and risky, and, but it's also the most exhilarating thing. And that's why I'll subsidise the odd show. If I have, I can find any spare time, I will write something. Like, you know, if somebody won't commission me to write something, I will find the time and write it. In the end, Dougal, like most writers, is a writer because he has something to say. And even though there might be circumstances where he can't be paid or given secure employment, that need to say something doesn't necessarily go away. So he might have to do it anyway. But the worry is, if artists aren't given a way of forging a career path, of building a sustainable life, of allowing knowledge, craft and experience to accumulate over a period of years of work, then I don't think musical theatre is ever going to be as good as it can be. And writers like Dougal, rather than gaining in knowledge, confidence and experience, are simply going to be forced to stop doing this. I I know I'm on the deadline. If I don't get to a certain uh, level of sustainability, then, then, you know, my family's going to start, like, really going, come on, Dad, sort yourself out. So so I I sort of, I have the pressure of that, really, um, which is a good pressure, because it makes me not just be frivolous, I suppose, when things are right. Um, So I do need that. So what have we learned from Dougal? Firstly, that there doesn't seem to be enough money or a robust enough infrastructure to help develop new musicals and to offer support to early and mid-career writers. Perhaps we should invest more money from hits back into creating a community and an ecosystem that allows new work to be forged. Perhaps we need more commissions and more theatres supporting and developing voices and careers of musical theatre writers. What's clear is that we need to bridge the gap between intention and sustainability of making musical theatre. Secondly, that in order for the art form to develop, we need more situations where writers can make work free of the constraints of money, where they can develop their voice and their skill sets and tell stories they're burning to tell, instead of simply writing in order to get money to keep their heads above water. And perhaps the way musicals are seen as a big, successful commercial art form is scuppering the development of new and exciting work and innovative new voices. Thirdly, that innovating in musicals, perhaps like in science, means changing some, but not all of the variables. 
that we shouldn't try and innovate on every single part of a show all at the same time just for the sake of it. And that making musicals out of hatred for what the form is is perhaps not as useful as making them because you're interested in interrogating what the form can do. Fourthly, that knowledge shouldn't be dismissed and that reacting against what you know, I believe is like pushing against a wall and can move you somewhere, whereas reacting against something that you don't know is like pushing against a shadow and will only leave you lost and confused. Fifth, that musical theatre is a three-dimensional and highly integrated medium that can only really be understood by sitting in a theatre. But musicals are expensive to watch, and because of this, people perhaps think they know what musicals are, when they really don't. They listen to a cast recording, or see a clip of one on TV, or see one show every couple of years, and then they think they know what the medium is, and they give up, or they settle for their expectations. And I think we need to create a situation where new musicals are given better platforms and audiences can experience more of what the medium is capable of. We need to be able to support non-commercial musicals and need to build audiences for those musicals and for those voices. And perhaps we need to get better at documenting those musicals, like the way NT Live documents big shows. Maybe those services and systems need to be contributed to the way we can engage with emerging artists. Of course, forging any artistic career is difficult. But I always think of Thomas Edison's quotation, many of life's failures are people who did not realise how close they were to success when they gave up. So if you've got something to say, I think you should keep going. Discord is hosted and produced by me, Adam Lenson. Our co-producer is Emma Clauber. Editorial assistance is from Daisy Chute, Michael Conley, Jonathan Lenson, Sarah Middleton, and Oliver Soans. If you're excited, we're back. Please drop us a line at Discord Theatre on Twitter and Facebook, or give us a review on iTunes. Thanks so much, and see you next week. Our theme music, as always, is by Luke Bateman. <laughs>